Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today I plan to break down how we can figure out our personal impact on the deer and how to mitigate the negative effects of pressure that we put on them. Now I know... Uh, this might seem like kind of a weird off-season topic, but it's not. It's actually kind of a play on last week's show about learning the land. Right now, we have a free window of time, at least till the ticks come out, where we can learn a bunch about our local whitetails. No matter how many we spook or how many miles we walk on our hunting grounds, the passage of time will erase any negative effects associated with it. And it's just a really good thing to truly understand how to cut down on the amount of negative juju we bring to the woods that those pesky bucks and does might just pick up on. When your job involves talking for hundreds of hours and then thousands of people listen to your ramblings, you find out all kinds of interesting things. Honestly, the same goes for writing articles or creating videos, posting on social media. What you learn is that most people don't care that much one way or the other what you say or do, as long as it fits roughly into the role they believe you fill. If you don't stray too far out of your lane, they pretty much let it slide and don't get a red ass about it. You also find a smaller subset of the audience that is just your ride-or-die crowd. They decide, for whatever reason, that you're a pretty swell guy. And they'll defend that to the bitter end. Obviously, having a few of those people on your side is pretty nice. But there's another subset. 
Those are the folks who seem to be looking to get offended. They suck, and I wish they would go do something challenging in their lives every day so they'd learn that the reason they seek drama is because they aren't getting what they need out of life. We see examples of these folks all the time, but I think they're a much smaller segment of society than it seems. They just happen to be real vocal and really into getting attention. They're the folks who will try to get you to self-censor, or worse. A lot of this behavior seems to come from main character syndrome that seems to make them real sensitive. They take things personal, even if the things they are mad about couldn't possibly be personal because, well, the person they are mad at doesn't know them or care about them. One of the first times I really encountered this was back when I wrote the whitetail column for Outdoor News. Now, my weekly column, at one point, I wrote about a Wisconsin buck I shot like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Now, that buck came in, and I hit him in the shoulder on opening night. And when he ran away, it looked like the penetration was good enough, even if my shot placement wasn't so great. Now, with a forecast in the low 30s overnight, I left him for the morning, not wanting to risk pushing him if I was dealing with a one lung hit or something else that wasn't going to be immediately fatal. So when a buddy and I returned at first light, we ended up finding a pretty sparse blood trail, but it was good enough that we eventually found that buck after, I think, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours. He was nice and cool and dead and ready to be field dressed, and wrestled back to the truck. Now, so I wrote about that deer because I had to write about deer every week. And the week after that column published, they ran a letter to the editor about how irresponsible I was to leave a buck overnight. The letter writer made it clear there was never a good reason to leave a deer in the woods overnight. And he also, not so subtly, made it known that the meat could not have possibly been worth saving. Honestly, it was bizarre. So I sent my editor an email and I said, uh, what's up with this dude? And he called me up and he said, the guy who sent that letter in sends a letter in every week, literally 52 times a year. It seems that this old farmer from Northwestern Minnesota goes through that paper when he gets it until he finds something to be offended about. And then he fires off a nasty gram or an old fashioned letter. I'm sure someone with a degree in psychology could weigh in on that with some interesting insights with regard to that fella. Now, here's the thing. In my position, I can get mad at that dude, which I usually do, or I could let it go. I can self-censor to not have to deal with people like him. I can do a lot of things. But the truth is, it wouldn't matter if I cleaned up my act and tried to make any one individual happy. There would be someone else who was just ready to try to cancel me or force my speech in a certain way. Because that's the nature of this whole thing. Now, why do I tell you this? Because so many of the things we do impact others in ways we probably can't imagine. If you think this isn't true, go work customer service or retail for a day or two. Maybe try out being a waiter or a waitress for a week. Go do a ride along with a local police officer. Maybe talk to a nurse or an EMT about their work. My point is, we make decisions every day that we think might benefit us or make us feel a little superior. And we often don't see how far those ripples spread in the old pond of life. We might not see who is affected by them, and we might not care, but I think we should. Just like it's not the waitress's fault you don't like your burger, or maybe she has twice as many tables to handle on a given night because her stoner co-worker called in sick again. 
It's also a reality that when we go into the woods, we make a lot of decisions for ourselves. We think they'll benefit us or make us feel better because they'll hopefully get us closer to putting an arrow through the lungs of a buck. But those same decisions, when we often think are pretty benign, can be working against us in ways we can't really imagine and will probably never fully understand. Those are the worst, I bet, because they're the ones that your target buck is paying attention to and might be the ones that make him decide he's had enough of daylight movement for a couple weeks. Or that even though he'd rather take a specific trail through the woods to get to his bedding area, he's going to travel a different one that leads through a much thicker habitat and around the stand that you've sat three times in a row. You see, we often think about how other hunters or coyotes or whatever affect the deer movement. We give, I think, a little too much weight to those things sometimes because it's easier than acknowledging that we are the ones putting the deer down. We are the ones burning our spots or leaving a scent trail through an area a hunter hasn't set foot in for a month. What we do impacts the deer we are hunting maybe more than anything else. In at least a lot of different situations, I believe that to be true. I learned this early on in my deer hunting career, although I probably didn't really understand it fully until I had been at this stuff for a long time. When I was just starting out, it seemed like the guys my dad and I hunted with, and hell, my dad, either killed bucks right away in the season or often not at all. I bet you can guess why, but if not, I'll tell you. Those scrapper bucks they mostly shot around the mid-September opener here in Minnesota hadn't been messed with for nine months. I know that's a letdown, but it's true. The reality was that back then, we didn't have trail cameras. We didn't have food plots. We had our feet and our eyeballs and we saw deer in fields at last light or we looked at tracks on the trails and we set stands for those deer. We did this in midsummer and then just got the hell out of the woods. And the first couple of times we hunted, or those guys hunted anyway, someone would occasionally shoot a buck that just hadn't had time to catch up to the program. That was it. After opening weekend, all bets were off and things got a lot harder. You can see this on a much larger scale when you look at the breakdown of when deer are shot during a general gun season. The bulk of them will die on opening day or opening weekend, and then the harvest numbers fall right off the old cliff. Now, it's not as simple as the deer going, holy crapioli, there are thousands of predators in the woods right now. It's also a matter of hunter effort, with a majority of hunters spending opening weekend in the woods and then not hunting again. Though, I guess if you're going to have 500,000 hunters in the woods one day versus 100,000 the next day, 500,000 hunters are going to kill more deer. Now, if you've hunted gun season after the opener, you know that even though the woods are much more empty of hunters on, I don't know, Wednesday than they were on Saturday, the deer movement can be real disappointing. That's grand scale stuff and pretty easy to understand. But what about your own hunting on your own spots? Remember in the intro to this podcast where I mentioned the window we have right now to scout without negative hunting repercussions? So true. Time is your friend because it works to convince the deer they are safer by the day. Your presence, whether observed directly or felt strongly after you're gone, kind of resets the old clock. 
enough presence and you create the dear version of the kind of lunatic who writes a nasty letter to a newspaper every week about something that really doesn't matter at all. You don't want your whole audience full of those guys if you get my drift. So why does it matter now? Because it pays to think about how you'll impact the deer when you do hunt them in like seven or eight months. It pays to understand the weight of the decisions you make around pressure and your presence and how you'll mitigate the whole thing to keep the deer from being overly sensitive to your presence. This is not as easy as it sounds. You know why? There are several reasons. The first is that we look at whitetails like they just aren't going anywhere. They do have relatively small home ranges, and we often get lulled into too much false confidence that the bucks aren't going to leave our ground. If we spook them in late September, they'll still be around to chase does during the rut. That may be true, but why spook them at all if you don't have to? Or think about it a different way. Most of the places you and I hunt probably don't encompass a deer's whole home range. Maybe you're hunting 40 acres, and too much sloppy presence on it will push the deer to the neighbor's ground. After all, the deer live there too. I don't know, if you had one room in your house that was infested with scorpions or black mambas, you'd probably spend more time in a room that wasn't infected with scorpions and black mambas, right? The danger of believing the bucks really aren't going anywhere because of their genetic hardwiring that tells them six or 700 acres is plenty is that we often don't think of how much ground that actually is. What's worse is that these rules only apply when the sun is shining, but our trail cameras work at night when all bets are off. So the buck that might be as good as gone because he's on to you in the daylight could easily walk by your camera at midnight and make you think that he's still in play. This is kind of a whitetail specific thing and would probably really be driven home if you were lucky enough to hunt out west for big mule deer with an absolute killer like Randy Almer or Nate Simmons over at Western Hunter. Those guys find a big deer and their whole goal is to not let them know they're being hunted because those mountain bucks that are so visible in a specific basin now will bust the hell on out of there when they figure out that they're being stalked or even watched sometimes. Could badass hunters like those guys find them again three basins over? Sure. But they don't want to have to try because it's not a guarantee. And the whole thing is going to get a lot harder the next go-round. So where does all this rambling intersect with you, a whitetail hunter, and the off-season conditions we are facing now? Because it's never too early to figure out how you'll go about your year as a whitetail hunter with a keen eye toward your impact on the deer. I think about it all in reference to timing. Right now, I can blow mm, the deer out of there all I want, and it won't affect me in September. What can I learn about the land, which is what last week's episode was all about, is just damn near like 100% positive. Anything I learn is good. The downsides are so low, they might not even really register. That's why so many of the best deer hunters spend so much time winter scouting. I know you've heard me say that a lot, but I'm going to keep saying it. You know, or you might say, but what if you only hunt a small property and it doesn't really require a bunch of winter scouting? Okay. How many stand sites do you have? How many access points? How do they allow you to play potential conditions throughout the various months of the hunting season? And how can you lay out your options to keep your impact as light as possible? Can you go out and trim a few entrance trails now? Okay, do that. 
The trails you cut now will grow in some during the summer, but they'll give you a real advantage for going in and out undetected. And they won't have any effect right now if you go in. It's free time. It's a free hit, free play, whatever. That's a good start. Or do you have a favorite stand site that starts out really good but fizzles out after a few hunts? Is there a better way to get there? Or is it your favorite because it's easy to get to and hunt and you don't really give yourself too many other options? Should you be looking at other parts of your property that might be better suited for a few ground blinds? What kind of an ambush plan can you put together now while you've got tons of time? Now, even if you don't hang stands yet or put out some blinds, you can start to decide where you'll do it and maybe trim some shooting lanes or whatever right now. Maybe you can stack up some deadfalls on the edge of a meadow so that in August you can slip in and really brush in a ground blind. This is like at certain times when the yellow penalty flag goes flying in an NFL game and the quarterback knows he essentially has a free play to work with, so he takes a shot deep. As you're thinking about this and how you can cut down on your felt presence in September by doing stuff now, think about your trail camera strategy too. Can you buy some lithium batteries to keep your cameras running for months while you stay the hell out of the woods? Remember, your presence in the woods is a negative no matter what, even if it's just a seemingly innocuous little camera check three weeks before the season opens. Do you have an idea where you might sit around the opener, but also three weeks into the season? How about a little rut funnel that you can leave alone? Now you might be thinking, sure, but there are other people hunting my ground, and who knows what those idiots will do? No one. Probably not even those idiots. Really, no. But you can't control them. So you just have to decide on how to set yourself up for success. And a big part of that is understanding how to lessen your impact and play the timing game. This all goes back to what I talked about last week about learning the land and learning the habitat and how deer use specific parts of the terrain and when they should use it. I mean, think about this in terms of the lead up to the season. You just have this amazing window there. But throughout the season, when you hunt and where you hunt should also be filtered through how much of an impact you've had on the deer recently and how much you'll impact them with each hunt. If you have setups for various wins and have worked on some access in the off season, you're probably already ahead of the competition. This allows you to keep the deer from getting overly sensitive to your presence and allows you to create a situation where even on smallish properties, you know, you're going to have some options. They'll tend to hunt a little bigger if you really think it through. Now, all of this might seem so far off and not really that urgent right now, but now is when you should start working on that plan. This is like the cornerstone of winter scouting. You get a freebie and you get to do this work now that's going to pay off. Every little bite of work you take now can add up to a pretty damn satisfying meal come deer season. And if you actively try to keep the deer from knowing you're after them to the best of your abilities, the dessert will be something sweet and delicious and hopefully worthy of a grip and grin. So think about the land. Think about how the deer use it. Think about your individual spot. And then think about timing. Plan for the best options to rest spots, to mitigate your felt presence, and to keep the deer moving during daylight hours in areas where you can have close encounters. Start that right now and keep it going all summer long. And you have the recipe for one hell of a good season. And tune in next week 
when I plan to talk about how to get creative in finding new places to hunt, because it's never a bad thing to be trying to suss out some places that are going to give you permission or maybe some new public land or whatever. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening and for supporting us here at Meat Eater. We really appreciate it. If you want more whitetail content, head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel or to themeateater.com slash wired, and you'll get everything you need to be the baddest-ass deer hunter you could possibly imagine. Maybe. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.